Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the McMillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Daniel Botsman, a professor of history at Yale University and the chair of the Council on East Asian Studies at the McMillan Center. He teaches courses on the history of Japan from 1500 to the present. His publications include a translation of the memoirs of a prominent post-war foreign minister, Okita Saburo, A Life in Economic Diplomacy, and a study of the history of punishment from the 16th to 20th centuries, Punishment and Power in the Making of Modern Japan. Today we talk with Professor Botsman about his research paper titled, Freedom Without Slavery? Coolies, Prostitutes, and Outcasts in Meiji Japan's Emancipation Moment. Welcome, Professor Botsman. Thank you, Marilyn. Let's begin with an overview of your paper and its premise. Uh, so one of the things that I've been interested in for quite a long time, in a general kind of way, is the, uh, the feeling that a lot of people have that there's a fundamental divide between the West and the non-West. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think is in that uh, kind of um, general view of the world supposed to set the West apart mm -hmm. uh, is the idea that the West loves freedom, mm -hmm. that freedom is the supreme value of the Western world. And that, again, is kind of always put in contrast with the non-Western world. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a pretty commonplace idea. Um, but one of the scholars that's really taken that idea and riffed on it in an interesting way is a sociologist named Orlando Patterson, who um, won a lot of big prizes for a book he wrote about the history of freedom uh, in the West. Mm -hmm. And what he argues is that the reason that the Western world has embraced freedom in this very special kind of way actually has to do with the history of slavery mm -hmm. in the West. And that without the very particular relationship that the Western world has to slavery, you wouldn't have this embrace of freedom. I see. And those two things uh, struck me as interesting things to think about, those two propositions, um, that freedom is something that really is uniquely embraced by the West mm -hmm. and that that also is connected to the history of slavery. Um, those things seem to me something that could be usefully thought about in the context of 19th century Japan, which is what most of my own work focuses on. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that, first of all, 19th century Japan was a place where freedom really is embraced um, and becomes a kind of central part of political discourse uh, in, especially in the decades following the major restoration of 1868. Okay. Um, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing uh, is that um, Japan at that time is also a society where slavery as an institution really does not exist. Mm -hmm. At earlier points in the past, there had been something like slavery, but most scholars agree that by the 18th century or so, slavery has pretty much disappeared from Japanese society. Mm -hmm. So here we have a non-Western society that embraces freedom and doesn't have slavery. So I was interested in working out um, you know, what the case of Japan might have to say then about these bigger issues. And what I conclude in a kind of general way is that um, the idea of slavery does become very important in Japan in that period as a kind of metaphor for talking about 
lots of different groups in society um, who needed to be set free. Mm -hmm. So uh, once these groups are identified as slave-like, then you can also start introducing this idea that they need to be emancipated. Mm -hmm. And that in turn, I think, paves the way for a kind of broader adoption of the rhetoric of 19th century liberalism in Japanese political life. Okay, and how did you come to write the paper? <laughs> well, as you mentioned, um, I wrote a book that took a long time um, mm -hmm. about the history of punishment, okay. which had lots of lovely um, you know, uh, things in it, you know, various gruesome tortures mm -hmm. and uh, horrible ways of executing uh, people. And then uh, also uh, the kind of exploitation of prison labor and sure. so on. Um, so pretty grim stuff. So part of me wanted to do something bright and cheerful. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, what could be happier than freedom? <laughs> sure. Um, the reality, of course, was that probably because of faults in my own personality, uh, freedom also turned out to be a fairly grim topic in many ways because it's very hard to talk about the history of freedom without then facing the sure. reality that it's usually the hopes that are invested in this idea of freedom usually end up getting betrayed. Right. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that was one of the, uh, at a kind of personal level, that was one of the things that got me interested mm -hmm. in the question. And then, you know, I'm a historian, so I like to put things in kind of broader social context. Sure. And the other thing that was happening when I started uh, thinking about these things was Operation Iraqi Freedom. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that really led me to think about the way freedom as a general concept gets used to... Um, uh, excuse or justify all sorts of things which may or may not actually have to do with concrete practices mm -hmm. that really enhance freedom in people's everyday lives. Okay. And in working on the paper, how did you do your research? Well, uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, so, uh, for one thing, there was a really wonderful body of secondary literature about the history of slavery mm -hmm. and freedom that was great to kind of dig into. Um, but then in Japan, I was able to go through all sorts of diplomatic records, mm -hmm. um, old newspapers, um, various kinds of archival materials, um, uh, things to do with the history of prostitution. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing that was nice about it is, whereas most of my earlier work involved um, really focusing only on materials written in Japanese, mm -hmm. um, because of the particular moment that I was investigating in this paper, I was able to draw on a lot of things written in other languages, so obviously a lot of things in English, but also there was material in Portuguese, in Spanish, there was even material in Russian mm -hmm. um, and French, so there was all wow. sorts of interesting angles sure. that, as I dug, became apparent, so that was, that was fun. Okay, and one of the, the central um, parts of your paper is the Maria Luz incident and then right. the subsequent emancipation um, edict. Right. So tell us about that a little bit because actually I thought that was pretty fascinating, that trial. Yeah, so that's really the, the uh, core of the paper as you, as you say. Um, so the Maria Luz incident um, basically uh, involved a ship mm -hmm. um, that had set out from Macau uh, and was headed to Peru. Um, and it gets caught in a storm in the middle of the Pacific. Um, and one of the masts on this ship is uh, snapped. And so it limps back trying to find a port, a friendly mm -hmm. port, where it can uh, weigh anchor and, and, um, and make repairs. So the port that it ends up in is Yokohama. Um, 
And uh, soon after the ship arrives in Yokohama and the captain requests permission to make repairs, um, men start jumping overboard uh, and swimming to neighboring ships, basically begging for help. Mm -hmm. um, and this, of course, leads to an investigation. You know, what is going on with this ship? Right. And, and, of course, uh, it turns out that the cargo on this ship is human cargo, um, specifically indentured Chinese laborers or coolie laborers who are being taken from Macau to Peru um, to work in plantations and actually guano mines and so on there. What's actually that fascinated me because I had no idea about Peru would would do something like that. So that came as a surprise to me. And again, yeah. what time period are we talking about? Uh, so we're really talking about the early 1870s. Okay. Um, and Peru's involvement in the so-called uh, Pacific Coolie trade um, spans a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of on again and off again thing. Um, but at least in the English-speaking world, Peru comes to be identified with the worst abuses of, wow. um, of this coolie trade, which very quickly, particularly in post-Civil War mm -hmm. United States, very quickly comes to be identified as a kind of new slave trade. Okay. Um, and that, of course, sets the scene for what happens in Yokohama, too, mm -hmm. because once it becomes clear that these men who are jumping overboard are coolie laborers, who are being held on this ship against their will, um, there's mounting pressure on the Japanese government to do something. Um, and eventually a trial takes place, in fact, two trials. Um, and, uh, and it hasn't, I mean, it's definitely an international affair, which right. also I found very interesting. Right, because at this point, basically the Western powers don't trust Japan to behave responsibly in legal matters. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, the court that is convened, in fact, is, as you say, a, a kind of very international court where there are American and British advisors working with the Japanese judge um, and where the opinions of all sorts of legal advisors from um, different parts of the world uh, who have been brought to Japan to advise the government are, um, are involved. Mm -hmm. um, so again, going through all of that material and the mul multiple layers and arguments that were kind of being laid out both in public and behind the scenes was really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I mean, the trial is actually, the two trials are quite complex, but really in the end, the key thing is this comes down to a question of is this a form of slavery? If it is, what is Japan's stance? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the end, the Japanese judge issues a statement saying, um, this is clearly a form of slavery. Japan will not tolerate slavery. Um, and he cites a couple of interesting precedents for that, mm -hmm. um, which had to do actually with attempts by an American businessman to try and recruit Japanese workers to go to Hawaii. Right. Um, and that has, in the years preceding the Maria Lu's trials, kind of created a bit of a panic in Japan, especially amongst Japanese elites, about the possibility that Japan will become the focus of a new Pacific slave trade. Right, okay. So the idea that Japan might be pulled into this new kind of slave trade in the Pacific has already kind of taken root. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, anyway, the judge in the case, the Marie Lu's case, says um, uh, Japan will not tolerate slavery. And so these men uh, should be set free, basically. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that has all sorts of implications. Right. For Japan, what were the implications? Right. So one of the things that happens in the context of the trial is that both people within the Japanese government and uh, various members of the uh, expatriate Western community in Yokohama start talking about, um, start debating the consequences of this issue. And one of the things that they both groups very quickly point to is the situation of prostitutes right. in places like Yokohama, <coughs> where basically the establishment of red light districts uh, and brothels was something that um, Western diplomats had pushed very hard for mm -hmm. because they thought we're going to have all these sailors coming into port and they need women, basically. Otherwise, they're going to run amok. Mm -hmm. um, so as a result of that pressure, and then partly also because of Japan's own um, history of uh, kind of establishing these kinds of districts in any urban center, mm -hmm. you do get a very flourishing uh, prostitution business right. established in Yokohama. And the women who are working in the brothels are actually held um, under contracts which are very similar to the contracts that are binding uh, the coolie laborers on this ship. Mm -hmm. Even though they couldn't understand what they were signing them when they signed them. Right, exactly. Well, I think in both cases you could say that... The same so, thing? Yeah, yeah, well, the women in the uh, brothels were often um, too young to be recognized as mm -hmm. legally responsible. Right. So that meant their fathers would sign for them. Mm, great. Yes, uh, lovely, lovely story, mm. I know. Uh, and in the case of the Chinese men on board the ship, um, there's all sorts of evidence that they were kidnapped often and then forced to sign or that mm -hmm. they didn't understand the documents they were signing. Um, but so there were these very clear parallels between these two sets of people. So what did Japan do? So in the end, Japan issues an emancipation edict um, for prostitutes and entertainers. Um, soon after the Maria Luz trial. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one of the things that's very interesting about that is that when you look at the debates that were going on within the ranks of the Japanese leadership prior to this, they were very conscious of Lincoln's Emancipation Edict mm -hmm. um, and developments with the abolition of slavery in other parts of the world. So this is an example, I think, where you get this kind of global phenomena of kind of emancipation of slaves mm -hmm having also these very concrete local consequences. Um, and again, you know, both the prostitutes and the coolies on board the Maria Luz, their position is slave-like. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a real difference between their situation and that of, um, you know, those who were basically In what way? chattel slaves. Well, for one thing, these contracts were not permanent. Okay. They expired after a certain period. But were they actually honored? Yeah, I think, yeah? yes, people were released mm -hmm. um, if they lived long enough. Okay. Uh, I mean, so <laughs> it's obviously not a kind of uh, wonderful arrangement. Mm -hmm. But it starts to give you a sense, I think, of how, you know, the question of what exactly is a slave, what is slavery, mm -hmm. um, it starts to expand a little bit, uh, especially in a context like that of, you know, uh, East Asia. Um, which has a very different kind of history to the Atlantic world mm -hmm. with regard to these things. Um, so th the idea that kind of the slave becomes a metaphor that can be applied to different groups. Mm -hmm. And then once you identify someone as a slave, I think then it kind of becomes automatic that you start thinking about 
the need to free them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is exactly the process you see playing out in Japan. But the other twist in all of this is that um, you know, historians have often actually dismissed this emancipation edict for prostitutes and not paid very much attention to it. Okay. And the reason for that is they've often seen it as a kind of um, sleight of hand uh, or a kind of publicity stunt. Okay. Um, and, and that uh, is because you know, this emancipation, it ends these contractual arrangements that had existed in the past, mm -hmm. but it certainly doesn't bring an end to prostitution. Mm -hmm. And instead what it does is it really puts the onus on individual women uh, to say, I am going to become a prostitute. Um, and so the conditions under which they're working and the circumstances in which they're held are actually often more or less the same as what they were before the Emancipation Edict. Mm -hmm. But instead of um, this contract being something that's entered into by the family, it has to be the woman herself expressing the desire to work as a prostitute. So right. it becomes a kind of matter of individual agency. Um, or one could say, I mean, once you become a prostitute, wouldn't it be very difficult to then become something else if you did not wish to be one? Uh, well, that's an actually a very interesting question. Mm. And um, I mean, one of the things that people have often observed about prostitution in the, in the late Tokugawa period um, in Japan is that there was much more um, uh, flexibility with regard to kind of moving out. Oh, really? Then so you weren't branded a prostitute forever. You were able culturally to make your living doing something else. Yeah, that's one of the general um, things that people often say about prostitution in the Edo period. So mm -hmm. the stigma of having been a prostitute was not as great as mm -hmm. perhaps it was in contemporary Western societies. But they do have the history of... Um, but it was terrible work. Yeah. And a lot of people died. You know, syphilis sure. rates were, and so on, were extremely right, high. Right, right. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, what do you conclude in your paper? <laughs> um, so, uh, the kind of last twist in it all is mm -hmm. that um, a few years prior to this case, um, another emancipation edict had been issued uh, in Japan. Well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, an edict was issued which took um, untouchables, okay. uh, which is not something that most people associate with Japan. Right, you think India. Exactly. So that's actually part of a bigger project I'm working on. Okay. But there were untouchable communities in Japan. Wow. And uh, soon after the Meiji Restoration, before the Maria Luz case, uh, there's an edict issued which basically promotes these untouchables to the same legal status as ordinary commoners. Mm -hmm. um, How did that go over? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. Um, in some parts of the country, there were riots. Okay. Um, that this was a terrible thing. So mm -hmm. basically, in the same way you had race riots protesting, you know, uh, the kind of so-called phenomenon of uppity black people after right. slavery was abolished, mm -hmm. the same kind of thing happens that, you know, you have these uppity untouchables. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting how human nature is so very similar, no matter where you go in the world. Yeah, it's true. And if you think about, I mean, one of the things, of course, that makes untouchability so interesting is that uh, it really defies our assumptions about who gets discriminated against. Mm -hmm. Because these are people for whom there are no markers of ethnic difference. Mm -hmm. There's no religious difference. Um, You're born into it? You're absolutely born into it. Um, some people were able to get out and mm -hmm. pass as commoners. 
Um, but most people stayed within these very poor, generally very poor communities. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so, but in spite of that very big difference, the history of, say, African Americans post-emancipation in the United States and uh, these untouchable groups in Japan post this emancipation edict is very in kind of similar again. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a very long and hard process of uh, um, really claiming a kind of full array of civil rights. Mm -hmm. And it's not until the 1960s and 70s that you really get substantial changes. So even at that level, there's some interesting parallels. Um, but uh, what I was going to say about how this all connects back to the Maria Luz case okay. is that uh, at the time that the untouchable groups are kind of promoted in status, there's no kind of uh, invocation of the language of liberalism, of freedom, of emancipation. Um, it's just a kind of promotion. And why do you think that is? Why does the promotion happen? No, no, or? why do you think the freedom, uh, the idea of freedom and the wording that would accompany that would not was not part of that, that they were just promoted. Right. Basically because I think this uh, edict that promoted them was coming out of an older discourse, an older set of ideas mm -hmm. about how society needed to change, which was really part of a kind of discussion that had been happening within Japan mm -hmm. and hadn't yet meshed with these new ideas that were being introduced from the Western world. Right. And so what happens in the wake of the Maria Luz incident is um, you get people in government saying, oh, and we've already had a kind of emancipation edict already for the outcasts. So in other words, you get the freeing of the coolies, then you get the freeing of the prostitutes, mm -hmm. and then you get this reimagining of this earlier act to, f to kind of promote untouchables right. as, again, an act of emancipation. Mm -hmm. And now, if you talk to people in Japan about the Meiji period emancipation edict, no one remembers this formal emancipation edict for prostitutes. Yeah. But what they do remember is this earlier uh, edict which freed the untouchable groups. Interesting. Um, and so tracing the history of how that kind of reimagining in terms of the language mm -hmm. of liberalism happened is something I'm also interested in. Ah, very good. Well, this has been fascinating. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. For more information about Professor Botsman and his research, please visit our website at yale.edu slash Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. <laughs>